Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the uh, New Books Network podcast. Today, I have um, an honor to speak to uh, Ainsley Morse, an author of a 2021 book, Wordplay, Experimental Poetry and Soviet Children's Literature. Uh, The book was published uh, at the Northwestern University uh, Press, and the book is truly uh, wonderful. So um, Ainsley, uh, welcome to our podcast. Um, So glad you're here. Thank you, Paulina. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) So I'll go ahead with my first question about the book. And I'll start with with the fact that, uh, to me at least, uh, and I'm sure for to another readers as well, um, especially those who work uh, in both uh, histories, Soviet history and literary studies history. Um, your book was extremely interesting, and I thought it was absolutely unique uh, in the way how it explored this whole complexity of the, so to speak, gray zone of Soviet and post-Soviet experimental uh, poetry. And by the way, another thing that I like that you incorporate, not just the Soviet, but also the post-Soviet Um, era. Not many authors do that. Um, And you argue that childlike, playful features cropped into Soviet poetry, but also into its prose and art. However, you, um, you, for yourself, for your book, you decided to study poetry. And so my first question would be why? Were you motivated by um, personal choices or was there any other motivation? Thank you. I I love this question because it allows me to dive in right away with the kind of origin story of the book. Um, So you're right that the book mostly is focused on the Soviet period. I talk a little bit in the introduction about the pre-revolutionary avant-garde and some of their experiments, some modernist experiments. Um, Most of the book is about the Soviet period. And then I conclude with a kind of epilogue, which is strictly post-Soviet, uh, uh, treating the work of some contemporary poets, poets writing in mostly the 2000s, 2010s. Um, and that actually contains the kernel of the origin story of the book. So to answer your question about why poetry, um, I think there are objective reasons for why poetry, uh, which I will mention but there are also kind of personal reasons. Um, so when I was in graduate school, I, I did a master's in comparative Slavic literature before I went to do my PhD. So this was during my first graduate school, during the master's program, which was at UNC Chapel Hill. And UNC Chapel Hill was lucky at the time to participate in this uh, kind of wonderful U.S. government program that, of course, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, which was called Open World. Uh, And this program brought people from really all over the world to the U.S., uh, but obviously we we were meeting the ones coming from Russia. Uh, And they brought groups of poets uh, to 
like the U.S. capitals, so New York City and Washington, D.C., and then they always sent them to like a provincial location, which is very, uh, it's very funny because, of course, I don't know. I spent some time growing up in Chapel Hill. I didn't consider it provincial, uh, but, you know, the, the powers that be considered it provincial. So we would get these delegations of poets, many of them coming from Moscow, St. Petersburg, um, who came to kind of see a little bit of this more authentic part of the U.S. or something like this. And this was how I started getting interested in contemporary poetry, which remains something that I work a lot with uh, in my professional life. And when I then would go back, would I, when I would go to Russia, to St. Petersburg and to Moscow in particular, I would, be, I would know some people. So I started going to readings. And it was really that contact with contemporary poetry and starting to see how that scene was functioning, starting from like the mid to late 2000s, um, that both led directly to my interest in late Soviet and even early Soviet experimental poetry, because they would all talk about how this is what we came out of. They were very much laying out a lineage for themselves that was rooted primarily in late Soviet unofficial poetry, and prior to that, in the experimental poets of like the 20s and 30s. Um, And even just being part of that scene, I felt like helped me to to piece together a kind of historical narrative for these poetic communities, literary communities in the late Soviet period, which I had no direct access to, right? I didn't have the opportunity to go back in time and uh, spend time with these people. But uh, some of the kind of pragmatic functionings of these communities, some of the um, ways people found to make a living as a poet, obviously the circumstances uh, were much different between the late Soviet period and the post-Soviet period, but there were certain commonalities that I felt like helped me uh, to understand all this. So this is, uh, I apologize if this is kind of going all over the place as an origin story. No, that's absolutely fine. No, <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> but when I, yeah, when I, when I talk about the book, I sometimes start with that because I say these, these poets who I, whose work I discuss in the epilogue to the book in some ways are simultaneously the origin of the book uh, because contact with them, thinking about what's happening in their work, was part of what started the detective work of trying to figure out where this all came from. I love how you mentioned it, being a detective work. That's absolutely how I see both history and literary studies. We're always working at, as like mini Sherlock Holmeses. <laughs> absolutely. So the objective reasons uh, for focusing on poetry in the book are that uh, poetry was a very primary genre for both unofficial literature of the Soviet period um, for practical, a lot for, for largely practical reasons. Poetry, as we all know, was memorized by lots of people, including like off in the gulag. Um, and also when you think about Samizdat networks, networks of unofficial publishing, it's just a lot easier. It's less of a burden to print up or type up a bunch of poems or a few poems or just one poem than it is to, to do a novel. Um, so it was, a, it was a very important genre in 
uh, unofficial poetry. Another reason for it being important besides that practical one is that um, the kind of cultural myth of the heroic, often kind of prophetic or Vedic poet uh, was extremely relevant for unofficial poets. Um, This is actually something that I think my authors who I focus on in the book, with the exception of Leonid Aranzon, um, are kind of resisting a lot of the time, but it was still a major topos, I don't know, uh, for, for the period. And then for children's literature, um, poetry was a, a favored genre for Soviet children's literature. It wasn't by any means the only genre, but it was a very important one. It was a very supported one. Um, so those are the kind of objective reasons for focusing on poetry as opposed to um, <clears throat> prose or, or or the other arts. Um, I talk a little bit about prose, but and in fact, I, I I rely on the scholarship of colleagues who have focused more on prose. But um, with prose, it's not as clear of a connection with the with the unofficial literature. No, that's true. And uh, even nowadays, when um, people who lived in the former Soviet Union uh, from different parts of the former Soviet state, um, they they feel certainly disconnected, especially since um, the war with Ukraine had started. But I feel like it's the poetry that very often uh, brings people together. So I can meet a person from Russia or Ukraine or Belarus on the streets of Chicago, elderly person who sees my child, and they will start reciting Chukovsky, Muhatsakatuha to her. You know, it's it's a common language. It's sort of like this code she'll, and she'll know it right which yeah, is and the she'll other. know it but they also know it right so it's mm-hmm. it's just amazing how uh this is still something in common between between people um in that region so it's mm-hmm. very interesting um Einsley, so i i would like to start with the very beginning of the book where you write about how in the soviet union and russia childlike elements were abundantly present in the works of experimental writers and poets and at the same time you also introduce the post revolutionary soviet children's literature as of course not surprisingly uh, highly politicized. Uh, so my question is, how do you think the exper- this experimentalism and a certain utopianism of Soviet children's literature and especially poetry coexisted with the fact that it quickly became this uh, sort of tool of political uh, influence or should we say propaganda? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's kind of a, a thorny question um, that really lies at the root of the book. Um, this, you know, how this seems like an unlikely marriage of uh, experimentalism and uh, propaganda or politicized politicized messaging. Um, and I think I, I I do plan to address this a little bit later in response to um, other other questions you might have. I think that part of the answer here is just that the 19, you know, the, the immediate post-revolutionary years and to a certain extent the 1920s under the politics of, of NEP um, were a period of upheaval. And there just were, it, it was possible for multiple versions to be circulating. Um, 
And so uh, in the book, I talk about how the experimentalism was really welcome in the beginning. So we, uh, the most famous person involved in Soviet children's literature is probably Vladimir Mayakovsky, um, who was famous as a rowdy, provocative futurist um, in the years leading up to the revolution. And his version of experimentalism, which of course nowadays, like we think of, it's a little harder to recognize how experimental it was because it became so uh, canonized during the Soviet mm-hmm. period. But this version of experimentalism was seen as absolutely in line with the kind of messaging that people wanted. So one of the works that I, one of the works I discuss in the book was a very early semi-children's book by Mayakovsky that came that was published in 1919. I mean, it looks quite self-published because the big Soviet publishing houses had not really developed at that point. Um, and it's called Soviet Alphabet. Uh, and it's these little ditties that accompany letters of the alphabet, but they're highly, they're extremely adult, you would think. They all have to do with major political figures involved in the First World War and the uh, Civil War. Um, And so it's an alphabet, right? That's a genre we associate with children's literature, uh, but it's not very nice. There's a lot of, there's an awful lot of bayonets involved, right? Um, And yet, uh, while this big debate that really was raging for about a decade about what children's literature should be like in the Soviet Union, while it was raging, uh, there were certainly prominent figures who said, like, this is what we want, right? This is what we, this is the right way to educate children. And the, another important factor to consider is that especially in the very early years of the Soviet project, these ideas about educating children were really running hand in hand with ideas about educating everybody, uh, probably more proper to say re-educating. Um, and one of the big drivers of Soviet children's literature was this idea that, well, this project of re-educating all of these millions of people is going to be very difficult. And at least the children are blank slates and, and actually have a shot at becoming, you know, the new Soviet people. Um, so this experimentalism, I think, was welcomed just because people were casting about looking for an answer. And sometimes the sometimes experimental poetics seemed like the answer, especially since they were um, almost always diametrically opposed to whatever was the status quo before the revolution. So as long as it didn't look familiar, as long as it didn't look like the kinds of uh, late nineteenth century, late nineteenth century bourgeois publications that people had been familiar with before, you know, maybe that will work. Um, and it really isn't until the later nineteen twenties, which is kind of where I start really getting into my my story in the book in earnest. It isn't until then that you start having more of a consensus and more of a consolidated authoritative structure for Soviet children's literature. Um, and that's actually when there begins to be a kind of a crackdown on experimentalism. I see. I see. And since we are discussing the experimental poets of the 1920s and 1930s, can we also talk about those who worked in translation, which is 
certainly not an easy uh, task to translate uh, poetry. And for example, you mentioned Harms and Vidyansky and others. Um, maybe you can zoom onto them and um, talk a, a little bit. So when I was reading your book, I thought about these people who existed not just in the in this field and space of poetry or translation, but they were truly, uh, in a way, the hermeneutes. So they had to translate the whole culture or civilization, right, into uh, the, so to speak, uh, Soviet, not just language, but political space, Russian, uh, not language, but Russian uh, cultural and political space. So um, can you zoom into them, talk about harms or Vidyansky or both? And can we? Um, do you think we can describe the poets, um, Marshak, Harps, Vidyansky, as political, as such political and cultural hermeneutes? So I was thinking about this word hermeneutes because hermeneutes, it does talk about, I mean, it has in mind this, this exchange of back and forth. And... My sense, especially if we're focusing on Harms and Vidyansky, and I would also mention Zabalotsky, Nikolai Zabalotsky, who was a, an Abariu poet, at least for a little while, and um, actually did even more translation than Harms or Vidyansky did. Um, I'm not so sure I think of them in terms of hermeneutics because I feel like their brand of translation was very much focused only in one direction. So with Harms, it's maybe the most complicated because Harms had this kind of uh, peculiar love affair with German. We know that he went to the Peterschule. Um, he writes in German in his notebooks and stuff, but he doesn't really know German that well. Um, it's like... Sometimes I have the sense that for him, German was almost like um, like a made-up language that he could experiment with. Um, like he liked the idea of another language, but I don't know how much it was for him about like German culture per se, like what it represented. And also these guys are um, working as translators at a time when the Soviet school of translation is really getting going and under the tutelage of Samuel Marshak, who was their boss at, uh, at the, at the children's literature publishing house, um, they were mostly translating in the Soviet style, which is to say from like a crib, Padstrochnik. Um, and, uh, you know, this is this is a little bit, in my opinion, this has less to do with the kind of back and forth, lively exchange when you really know two languages working as a translator. And it's more about thinking about just using this as kind of raw material to make a new work of literature in your native language, which I think is what they did. Um and when I think about, like, for instance, Harms has this wonderful translation of a Wilhelm Busch poem, Plichy Pluch, um, which is, is it, I mean, it's a great translation. It, it, it doesn't, it's not like it uh, betrays the original, as, as they say. Um, but, you know, it's really, it's a Harms poem, right? Uh, and and I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to criticize him or, or suggest that, that this is not the right way to translate or something like that, but I just don't 
Um, I'm just not sure, especially because none of them were able to travel, obviously. None of them spent any time in German-speaking places, you know, and so I don't, I don't so much see them as cultural ambassadors in the way that I think you can say maybe a little bit more about people like Tchukovsky and Marshak, who both spent time in the U- in the UK. Um, and meanwhile, meanwhile, if you think about, I know that you, I think you talked with Elena Goodwin, yeah? Yes, um, yes, I wanted this, to mention her now. <laughs> yeah, so she wrote this great book about, um, that just does a good job of really um, thoroughly talking about the phenomenon of, of English language literature, not just, not just poetry in, <clears throat> in Russian. And I think that what Tchaikovsky and Marshak did with English nursery rhymes um, is immensely interesting. Uh, but again, I feel like it's, it, for me, it's very much caught up in this drama of the Soviet school of translation, which is a huge drama, right? Like, um, and uh, if you think about what they did with uh, these nursery rhymes, you know, they both did major domestic, what is it called? Domestication. This is a term from translation studies. Um, they really made these nursery rhymes, which are to some extent quite bound up in their own time and place, right? Like when we read them today in English, as native speakers of English in the United States, we're missing a lot of the kind of references that they're making. Um, but, but more importantly, maybe, is thinking about how these translations that Tchaikovsky and Marshak brought into Russian and made very much a part of the Soviet canon, but maybe you could argue the Russian language, the Russian literary canon overall, because these are the poems that over the subsequent, over the entire Soviet period and even into the present day, people are going back and doing translations of those same poems, right? So you don't have a very lively bunch of people translating contemporary English language children's poetry into Russian. You have contemporary Russian language poets and translators who are still working with the same canon established by Tchaikovsky and Marshak, right? Because there's this whole um, uh, kind of aura around English English poetry that they serve to to make such an important part of Russian language poetry that it almost doesn't even matter. You know, the original context is so elided at this point because um, they just they made it they made it Russian. So I guess uh, just just to answer your question, I I see the translation activity as rather unidirectional. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but I but I think you were interested in how there's I, I think that it is correct to link some of this translation activity to their experimental thrust if you wanted to take it there if we wanted to go back to focusing on the Abariu poets like Harm Svitensky Zabalotsky um the best example of this is actually late Zabolotsky. Uh, so after he has come back from having to serve time in the in the gulag, um, and and his really his kind of second debut after he has been rehabilitated is this is this amazing translation of the um, the Igor tale Slovo Apolku Igrivia. Um, 
which I think is very much a trickster move on his part. Uh, so he he finds a way to be experimental because translation allows for experiment kind of in a similar way to how children's, like the genre of children's literature allows for experiment. Um, and so, and so even if that's not, that's not strictly, uh, that's something that is maybe not super important for Harms Vidyansky Zabolotsky in the twenties and early thirties, but it, it is something, it is always there. Um, and in the book I talk, I mean, just as, as a kind of general point of background, I talk about how um, children's literature and translation are these areas that uh, have quite a lot in common with one another during the Soviet period uh, in terms of their, you could say, social literary function. Um, they were areas where certain aesthetic dispensations existed uh, because who knows how they write poetry in Venezuela, right? Who knows? Uh, we wouldn't allow you to write like this um, in, in, in your own poetry, but in the context of translating like some kind of uh, socialist um, other nation, uh, you know, well, we have to, we have to just take that on faith. Um, so that was certainly something and kind of similarly, um, uh, when you're writing, when you're writing children's literature in the Soviet context, well, kids like it when things are kind of goofy and don't make sense. So you can write like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And since you touched upon this goofy childlike aesthetic, may I ask, um, may I ask you about it a little bit more? Because I remember as an example. In the book, you brought up uh, Kruchenik's words about Vidyansky's poems, uh, how it was seemingly written by the um, six-year-old, написано будто пяти-шестилетней девочкой, right? And then, can you talk a little bit uh, more? You touched upon it already, but can you um, sort of unfold it a little bit more for our listeners, this childlike uh, aesthetic? Yes, I'd, I'd like very much to talk about it. It's a central concept for me in the book um, because I, I make the basic claim that this childlike aesthetic is something that links this experimental poetry and, and the children's literature. And while you might expect to find a childlike aesthetic in children's literature, you don't necessarily um, expect for it to be commonly found in experimental poetry. Um and <clears throat> I, uh, the childlike aesthetic is why I start with the pre-revolutionary avant-garde and, and modernist writers, um, because although you can certainly trace these kinds of tendencies further back, I think that this is the relevant kind of point of origin for um, the way the childlike aesthetic plays out in the 20th century, as I'm interested in. Um, and I define... What it means uh, in various ways, I talk about um, the way that the childlike aesthetic can, uh, maybe the most obvious way is to have a childlike speaker um, or character in a poem. Um, often there is there are specific things about the way language is used. Um, this is, by the way, maybe another reason that I, I find poetry to be particularly congenial, because a lot of the um, thinking about 
children's expression has to do with the way that they use language. And this is something that uh, Tchaikovsky was very interested in and connected to how people should write children's literature and so on. Um, Another aspect of the childlike aesthetic that is quite important for a lot of the different, um, a lot of the different poets who I discuss is uh, kind of um, enfant terrible type behavior. So the child who is kind of naughty and breaks the rules all the time, um, resists uh, convention and conformity, rejects authority. Um, but you also have a kind of like very naive and, and simple version of the childlike aesthetic, which is not particularly rowdy, um, but maybe has a kind of clarity and uh, truth-seeking quality to its naivete. Um, and maybe one other very important uh, element to mention just in that in this in this short list of what how we might understand the childlike aesthetic is humor. So we already used the word goofy. Um, goofy is a good word, silly. Uh, sometimes this can shade into kind of off-color stuff. Uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk to talk about that a little bit later. Um, and uh, another way that I that I find useful to kind of give a little typology to the childlike aesthetic in the way that I then discuss it in the work of various authors is I say um, I use as an example the futurist concept of of zaum, um, which is the kind of abstract sound language that was thought up by the pre-revolutionary. Futurists, primarily um, Alexei Kruchonich and uh, Vladimir Hlebnikov. Um, and meanwhile, they both, they each had rather different concepts of Zaum. So for Kruchonich, um, the point was kind of, uh, in fact, this, he said this literally, that uh, Zaum language does not have determinate meaning. Um, so it doesn't mean that it has no meaning. Uh, but its power comes from the fact that we cannot fully grasp or pin it down. It's this kind of elemental force. Um, meanwhile, Khlebnikov had this very utopian and visionary concept of Zaum. Um, for him, it was a kind of super logical language. Um, and we have to struggle to uh, break down our pre-existing intellectual and aesthetic prejudices in order to access like this, the, the essential truths of this language, but it can be kind of decoded. Um, and I think similarly with the, with the childlike aesthetic, on the one hand, there's this idea that it's just a free-for-all, it's just kind of uninhibited, sloppy, whatever you might associate with a kind of screaming child careening around the house with a bucket of paint, right? Um, but it could also be this more modernist concept that I would associate here with Klyabnikov, that uh, the child just has a clearer view of how things actually are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, main, uh, you know, uh, sorry, I am thinking about it right now. It's a very interesting concept for me, having <laughs> children myself. Um, I started to process this in a different way. Actually, um, so from uh, from pre-revolutionary Yelena Gorov to the contemporary Dmitry Prigov, uh, as 
I can see in your book, Russian poetry actively attempted to make less sense, right? And to address this, um, the sort of gentle dummies so, who always live inside um, adults, right? And what was truly eye-opening and sort of intellectually shocking to me in your book was to to find out that there was this long tradition and continuation of this um, poetry uh, playfulness that made no sense, which I, as a um, Russian, as a person who grew up in the late Soviet and um, early 90s and early 2000s uh, Russia did not know about. So as school children, um, I, we who grew up in Russia, of course, knew about uh, Marshak. And in high school, we studied Mayakovsky. Uh, and maybe we knew about Hlebnikov and Harms. It was more like facultative. So Mayakovsky, we had to um, learn a few poems. And Harms and uh, Hlebnikov were more so additional. And that's it. Uh, maybe it has changed. I'm I'm talking from the perspective of a person who graduated from high school in 2002 in Moscow. Uh, but now I wonder, uh, what do you think about this? Why do you think this long-lived Russian poetic tradition, this, this tradition of silliness, tradition of zaum, right, tradition of making less sense rather than making more sense, is still practically unknown and sort of unpopular among traditional teachers of literature in Russia, contemporary Russia, is do you think, uh, Ainsley, there's still a stigma around it? The stigma that existed, for example, in the Stalinist Soviet Union? Or, or maybe these poets are too complex philosophically and it's hard to talk about them uh, with uh, middle school and high school children. Uh, and I also thought about one moment, the infamous Pussy Riot uh, trial, when the girls from Pussy Riot said that one of their artistic inspiration was actually poet Prigov, right? Uh, so I wonder if there's, again, this element of forbidden and, you know, stigmatized uh, poetry around, around this experimental um, Soviet and Russian poetry. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I guess I would begin by saying that I doubt very much uh, that anything good is happening in the current curricula that are being developed for school children in Russia. Um, I think, if anything, uh, the circumstances of war have consolidated conservatism. I think we're seeing this in, in all kinds of different areas. So even if there may have been some movement toward incorporating more of these authors into into the curriculum. I imagine that has been quashed, at least for the moment. Um, I will say that certainly at more elite schools, like in the capital cities, um, I don't know, like I know people who used to teach at the Lycée that was at Vushka in Moscow, for instance, and they would read, they would read some of these poets. Um, so I will, I'll just add, because I didn't mention it earlier, that uh, the bulk of the book is devoted to some of these poets you're mentioning. Um, for late Soviet experimental poets, uh, Vsevolodny Krasov, Leonid Aranzon, 
Igor Holin and Oleg Grigoriev. Um, and then I also have a chapter on Dmitry Prigov, who I treat as a kind of transitional figure. So the first four are chosen because they all had some kind of an engagement with children's literature. And I look at their so-called adult work that uh, has a lot of elements of childlike aesthetic in it. Prigov, I examine as someone who is also working quite a lot with the childlike aesthetic, but who actually did not have any formal connection to children's literature. Although, since Prigov hung out a lot with artists, he certainly was kind of tangentially near children's literature because a lot of his artist friends were were working as illustrators for these books. Um, so that's just a little bit of, of, of background there. Um, as far as why these poets have not been more part of the canon, I mean, it's I'd like to answer both your question and expand it because there's the question of the canon, like the school reading canon within Russia. Then there's the question of the kind of academic canon of 20th century literature in Russia. So maybe including more what people are doing in university level work there. And then there's the question of the Russian language literary canon in the U.S. or internationally among international Slavic studies scholars, uh, literary literary scholars, and uh, uh, however these guys are largely absent from all of those <laughs> all of those canons to kind of differing differing degrees. So I will say that most of my colleagues who I cite in the book and who I regularly work with on these authors, most of them are scholars either in Russia or um, or originally from Russia, but, but teaching in other places. Um, and uh, I wanted partly with this book to bring some of these names to uh, more English, English, an English language audience of, of my colleagues in, in the U.S., uh, because I think that these are uh, very uh, important poets whose work we should be teaching, whose work we should know. Um, it's not just that I selected them for being appropriate to my narrow focus in the book, but I think that they are uh, fascinating in lots of ways. Um, <clears throat> I think that part of why they haven't been examined a lot before, so I would say a couple of things. First, as far as the school curriculum goes in, in Russia or in Russian-speaking places, um, I think that it actually has been a project of the past few decades to kind of re-examine the canon, but I think the canon remained largely Soviet. Um, I think that what happened in Perestroika and the 90s, this kind of reincorporation into the canon of formerly uh, underground writers, I think it was very partial. And I think that the overwhelming majority of writers incorporated were uh, the kind of more famous repressed writers of the early Soviet period. Um, yes, that, that is true. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so I, the, the, the later Soviet period is has just been, I think, uh, problematic. <laughs> I think that the answer for all of these different canons that I described is kind of the same, which is that people start to get really confused um, about like who's good, right? Who matters? 
if you if you think about these repressed, I don't know, some famous figures from the early Soviet period, like uh, Osip Mandelstam or Anna Akhmatova, Marina Tsitaeva, these are poets who were still kind of playing by the old rules. They were still, you know, engaging very, uh, very wholeheartedly with the modes of being of poetry laid down by Pushkin, right? Laid down by kind of this romantic hero of the 19th century. And so it was kind of easy to plug them in to that kind of a schema. Um, meanwhile, there's this proliferation of unofficial writers uh, in the late Soviet period who are themselves very often suffering from feeling like we don't know who we are. We don't know, you know, there were, there, there's this concept of the uh, Gamburski shot that uh, Shlovsky writes about this idea of a kind of a, uh, a ranking that is underground and secret itself. Um, and there were various conversations about, you know, who are, how do we sketch out a hierarchy, a canon of this unofficial uh, literary landscape? Um, and of course, there were lots of big fights around that because, for the most part, even though they were oppositional, politically, aesthetically oppositional, most of the underground writers were basically really wanting some kind of conventional success. As you might, as you might expect, as my as my old friend, the um, <clears throat> the sadly now deceased experimental poet Vladimir Erl always used to say, "Какой дурак не хочет печататься." And uh, so I think that I think that part of the problem is that there's just too many of them. Uh, many of them wrote a lot. None of them had editors. Um, and basically, their incorporation into different kinds of canons has been happening piecemeal um, and often in a kind of a DIY fashion. So, for instance, uh, both Sivalid Mikrasov and Igor Holin, um, who are to some extent like pretty acknowledged now as significant 20th century poets, uh, largely thanks to the existence of Moscow conceptualism, even though they weren't strictly speaking, Moscow conceptualists, the way someone like Prigov is, they have been kind of, I don't know, um, brought under the wings of Moscow conceptualism and therefore allowed to be acknowledged as great because there's an ism vaguely attached to them nearby. And this happened through the collective efforts of a group of German Slavicists who were coming to the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and recording their work and publishing it and translating it, as well as, uh, I mean, we can thank Boris Groys for the term <clears throat> Moscow conceptualism. <clears throat> you know, so meanwhile, you know, I have made some kind of contribution with this book, although I don't think up any isms. I say, okay, here these guys are who you can understand in this context of like experimental poetry and the childlike aesthetic. Um this is happening again with other poets in other areas, you know, depending on just sometimes it's random. If somebody decides to do scholarship, then you kind of get your name out there. But there are many, many more really phenomenal writers from this time period who remain either largely unknown or completely unknown, or there isn't any scholarship or there isn't any scholarship in English. Um, and it's again, it's kind of the problem is that there's just too many of them. And academia loves categories and isms and schools that you can kind of mm, carefully box away. And then you know what you're talking about, right? 
Um, so that's mm-hmm. part of the problem. Um, as far as stigma and being taken seriously, I did want to address those questions because uh, I think that that is also part of the of the answer to your question. I think that there is a stigma, um, and it is in some ways the same stigma faced by these authors in the Soviet period. Um, and it relates to the problem of categorization and uh, typology and kind of other academic things. And that is that a lot of this poetry is quite deliberately indeterminate. Um, and it is even, it is indeterminate more than it is ambiguous, right? I think that uh, I, I thought about the distinction between these words when I was writing this book. Um, ambiguity is useful when you think of it in Russian, right? because it's kind of saying, okay, there are two meanings, right? And this is kind of getting you into the area of Aesopian language, the idea that there is a surface meaning and a hidden meaning. But there's just two, right? And indeterminacy, which was a big word for someone like Kruchonich back in the early, the pre-revolutionary period, um, indeterminacy, neopredilionist, is where you just don't really know. It's just hard to say, right? It's hard to say what this poem is about. It's hard to say what is going on in it. There are lots of things going on. There is this kind of maybe merzanya, this shimmering that we associate with Vidyansky and also with Prigov. Um, and there's a kind of refusal to make sense. Uh, and if you think about being a high school teacher of poetry or something, most of the time, this is true in the US as well as in Russia, most of the time when you teach a poem, you know, you say, what is this, what is this about, right? And the students, they want that, right? They want to be able to get the right answer. And if you bring in a poem and you say, okay, let's talk about this poem, what can we say about this poem? We can say lots of things about the poem, but we're not going to ever get to like an answer. And I think that, hmm, that maybe you're right. Maybe the answer is as simple as that. Yes, uh, school children. I think, that's part, I think that's part of it. I think that, and I and I think it's not just off-putting to school children, right? It's off-putting to a lot of people. A lot of people would prefer for there to be an answer. But I mean, we know certainly this. This is true of a lot of poems by someone like Mandelstam. That didn't prevent him from becoming uh, beloved by by many generations of, of Slavicists. So I think it's a combination of these factors. I think it's the it's a, a, the challenge of indeterminacy. And then I think it is just um, <clears throat> the fact that uh, the, the process of canon forming was also breaking down in the 20th century to a very large extent and continues to break down. And this just makes it harder um, to understand what goes where. I see. I see. Um, you also show in your book, and I'm always fascinated by the illustrations. I'm like a child reader myself, uh, so I prefer books with illustrations, uh, even scholarly books. And you actually have in your book uh, quite a few uh, really interesting illustrations. And you also talk about experimental illustrator, experimental illustrators um, of the modernist epoch, like El Lisitsky, Lyubov Popova, Vladimir Lebedev. Um, can we talk about these artists and their illustrations of the work of uh, the poetry that you talk about. And in relations to this question, can you also uh, say a few words about the cover of your book? Specifically, I, I'm looking at your book right now, and uh, on its cover is um, 
actually the cover of the book uh, by Marshak, Dietke v Kletke, and it's kind of very cute. <laughs> and I almost made a mistake of saying uh, when I introduced you that Ainsley Morse wrote a book, Dietke v Kletke. Um, so can you please talk about, um, in general, the illustrations for um, this experimental poetry and specifically about your choice of the uh, cover of your book? I am absolutely delighted that you made that mistake uh, because um, part of part of why I wanted to have Yetkiv Klietke on the cover is because this was the original title. So I did work on uh, uh, on this book. Well, I, I my, the the beginning work for this book was my dissertation. My dissertation's title was Yetkiv Klietke. Um and this proved to be uh, basically impossible to translate in a satisfying way which is why I had to come up with a new title, which, as you see, is wordplay. Um, but uh, uh, it, you can think already, like, Dietkiv Klietke, it just doesn't sound good in English. It's like kids in cages, babies in cages. <laughs> um, we know that Marshak is talking about all of these adorable baby animals at the zoo, but in the particularly in the contemporary American context, it just sounds uh, really bad and like it's going to be something about what happens on the border um, to the south. So uh, that's why I chose this particular uh, image, the, the cover image from Marshak's book for, for my book. And uh, Marshak's book was very, very popular. And uh, as you can see, this one is from 1923, but it was reissued many, many times. Probably the most famous is with illustrations by, uh, I think, who is it? Evgeny Charushin, which is a later edition um, and doesn't have as uh, as nice of a cover, actually. Um, but of course, the illustrators are a huge part of the story. And to a very large extent, they parallel the story with the authors. So um, as I've already said, I, in the first couple chapters, I talk about the kind of backstory for the childlike aesthetic. And I also talk about the early days of Soviet children's literature, when there was this kind of... Uh, <clears throat> free-for-all going on around what kind of experimentalism do we want in our children's literature? Do we want updated fairy tales or do we want to outlaw fairy tales completely? Do we want to have a lot of wacky wordplay or do we want everything to be very ideologically clean and uh, almost computer-generated, right? Um, and the illustrators were part of those debates Similarly uh, to the poets and writers, among the early Soviet children's book illustrators, you have plenty of figures who were pre-revolutionary illustrators for books. Um, so, for instance, Vladimir Kanashevich. And you can kind of see, like, he he's actually one of my favorites to think about. He's my favorite, too. Yes, I, I, well, love, I love his work. And I also am so intrigued by the fact that he stuck it out into like the early 30s, even though his style of illustration to me is very bourgeois. Um, mm -hmm. Especially if, you, if you're looking at books illustrated by him compared to some of the really very, uh, I don't know, cubist-esque or, or constructivist uh, illustrations by someone like Vladimir Lebedev who worked with Mayakovsky. So you have... Um, uh, these these the similar debates happening about the visual language of children's literature for the same time period. And you have a similar kind of 
shutdown of those debates toward the later 20s, Stalin comes into power, the writers' union starts to be developed, socialist realism gets gets uh, launched in the early 1930s, um, <clears throat> and the illustrators kind of get brought to heel as well. Um, uh, at the same time, in some ways, the illustrators, I would say, my estimation, have almost more freedom given the given the genre that they are working in, um, simply because visual language was a language that uh, arguably the the people in censorship positions were less fluent in than Russian, right? Yes, I think um, you uh, you even had a term for that, and I really like how you put it: aesthetic oasis. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's not it's not universal though. For instance, I I like to tell about this uh, uh, example of um, this is in the later Soviet period uh, because the situation is there's a kind of mirror situation with the writers and illustrators at that point as well. Just as in the 1920s and 30s, they often tended to be friends with each other. They were these communities of people who would even share work on a book or something like this. So um, there were, there was a pair of illustrators who were also prominent uh, experimental underground artists, Eric Bulatov and Alek Vasilyev, who did a lot of work with some of my poets um, in the 60s. But they were actually banned from children's literature for a six-month period following a book that the authorities found to be too experimental in its visual language. So it wasn't the case that they were completely free to do whatever they wanted. Um, but at the same time, when you read these books from the from the 60s, first of all, the names are all these names that many of which have become like internationally famous artists like Ilya Kabakov, Viktor Pivavarov, Bulatov as well. Um, and you can also see that they're doing very similar work uh, in these children's books and then in their own work, which until the end of the Soviet period was completely underground. Um, so I would love at some point, probably I would want to collaborate with some of my art historian colleagues Um but I would love to really dive into doing the research to kind of fill out that part of the story. I, <clears throat> I did consider trying to do it all in one book, but it just became clear very quickly that it would be too much. So I just talk about yes. it a little bit. Yeah, of course. And finally, since we're talking about what you're planning to do, is there any current project that you're working on? Should um, our listeners expect uh, a new book from you, another new book from you soon? Um, is there other any um, plans that you have for future development of this topic or maybe a completely different topic? <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, I am working on quite a few different projects right now. And all of them have some kind of connection to to this project. All of them kind of come out of it or go in different directions out of it. So um, one that probably has the most direct relation to this project is that I'm working on a big translation project of the poet Jan Satunovsky. So Jan Satunovsky was uh, friends with and kind of part of the community around 
the around Lianozova, the poets known as the Lianozova school. So he worked with Igor Kolin, Sevolod Nikrasov, Genrik Sapir. This is in like the early 1960s um, in Moscow. He was, meanwhile, quite a lot older than... Oh, and and he worked with them as well uh, as a children's book writer. So they were kind of... uh, They hung out together. They talked about poetry together, but they also did the same kind of freelancing for um, uh, Dietzky Mir. And uh, what else did they have? I guess just Dietzka Literatura. So Sentinovsky was a fairly fairly well-published children's writer. Um, I actually really like his his children's poetry, um, and I kind of regret not writing more about him in the book. Uh, But he is also just an incredibly fascinating poet. Uh, Particularly, I started working on him in connection with thinking about poetry of war, actually. So it has has bearing on contemporary events as well. Satinovsky was from Ukraine. Um, he He was a Jew from Eastern Ukraine from Dnipro, um, and he served in the Second World War, and starting from about 1939, so uh, even before the war began for the Soviet Union proper, he has these incredible, incredibly innovative, um, kind of terrifying poems that are about impending war, they're about service in war, they're about the horror of war, Um, and so he's very interesting for me right now. Um, and, uh, another thing that I'm working on that is more like a, more like an academic book project it, that I'm working on with quite a few other colleagues is just getting into thinking about what happens with contemporary poetry in the nineties. So, uh, this too is drawing on some of my thoughts in the final chapters of this book <clears throat> where I, where I, where I say, okay, so we still have this childlike aesthetic, but at this point, it's been completely d- divorced from children's literature, which has gone and become its own industry in a way different from how it worked in the Soviet period. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. We're looking forward to read your new books, hopefully do an interview on them. Ainsley, thank you so very much for our conversation today. And I want to remind our listeners to um, check out Ainsley Morris's book, Wordplay, Experimental Poetry and Soviet Children's Literature, which was published in 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paulina. It's been a pleasure.